the academic study says the the spread you need to actually look for if you're going to forecast in a, a recession with an inverted yield curve is the difference between 90 days and 18 months. In other words, three months and 18 months. If the three-month rate is below the 18-month rate, no recession. That's what history tells us. If it goes the other way around, where the 18-month rate is lower than the 90-day rate, recession. Well, and here, here's the other key, not, and it's important, what? and it's, it's not always a recession, but you need it to last for a month. That's, yes. That's the thing, is that the time where this is inverted it can't be just because of a hiccup in the bond market. It can't be the first day that it occurs, everybody goes, <gasps> Once more unto the breach, dear friend. Else fill the ball up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to a second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach, uh, where Jeff McClure may be heard to say, uh, I deem. Mm-hmm. So we expect us to say, ah, uh, a lot throughout the mm-hmm. episode. Right. Yes. We're going to do our best, but we're bald. So that's our first disclosure. Yep. Right. Uh, uh, our second disclosure is that the Personal Wealth Coach is not just the name of this radio program. It's also the name of a registered investment advisory firm that's registered with the SEC. Um, why are we telling you that? Because they wish us to, and it's a good idea to know that we have a professional side to what we're doing as well as this weird radio stuff. Um, but I just said it's registered to give investment advice with the SEC, but we can't do that on the air uh, because Fiduciary investment advice, we have to know who you are and we have to be private about what we say. There's a little problem with both of those on the radio. So what we do on the radio is education. Do we get some benefit from it? Sure. Sometimes people call us to do business with us uh, after having listened to the radio program for lots of years. Rarely after the first listen. After the first listen, they're probably getting medicated and they're wondering what it was that just happened to them and well, that was a weird program. Why didn't I change the channel? After about the third time they listen, they're hooked. And uh, the, mm. fir- the first one's always free. Um, on top of that, just because we're registered with the, at the firm level with the SEC doesn't mean that they approve of us. Because that's, Boy, is that an understatement? That's not how they do it. They don't approve stuff. There's no approval. If, you know, if, if you're approval-seeking, you've got issues with the parent and you really wish for approval, uh, you're going to need a lot of therapy if you ever register with the SEC because you get none from them. Uh, you do get disapproval occasionally. We have so far avoided all the disapproval side, uh, which is nice. Uh, that, that they are uh, the SEC though. So their job is to find things of, to disapprove. Just like the police are not supposed to go out and tell you, well done, you have followed the law. It's, it's more like they say, hey, you're, you're breaking the law there. You got to stop it. So um, that's, those, those are my first two disclosures. Do you have one that you would wish to wish? Well, there's always the one that we're not paid to do this radio program. That's true. Nor do we pay the radio station to do the program. We do it out of the goodness of our hearts. It does provide us some benefits that we have obtained a few clients in the 26 years I think we've been doing this. Not very many. And if we do a cost-benefit analysis, I think 
considering our time and all things considered, I don't think it's no, all things considered, a very good that's advertisement. A, that's a different radio thing. See what else? Oh yeah, we advertise on KTEM for the radio show. Yes, and which KTEM also advertises for the radio program. That's good. Yes. Uh, the information that we provide on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. See, this is by one time a week I get to say deem an accuracy or completeness of, of said information. We right. also, and this is my favorite part, I have to add this in, I may have to do this forever, henceforth, henceforth. We also do not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of unsaid information. I do. I could guarantee it's I will guarantee the incompleteness of unsaid information. Perfect. That's the only guarantee we can give today. I guarantee it. Oh, no. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. I mean, the biggest news of the week, if you looked at any of the talking heads on the television, was the yield curve. And you have been pregnant on the subject. I would like the labor report to be that you are giving birth to the subject at this point. So you may, I, I, are you okay with taking this one? Yeah, the labor report was kind of interesting this week too, though. Yeah, well, I mean, I was alluding to that. We can come to that as well. But the inverted okay, yield well, curve is, 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 we got this great news that came out of the labor department right in the middle of this ginormously, amazingly fantastical news from the labor department we have something happening in the interest rate area that caused all news about labor to get focused on this instead. So, Well, the two, three, five, and seven-year treasury notes are yielding higher than the 10-year treasury note, which is odd because a normal yield curve, uh, which is called a positive yield curve, the longer the, the, longer the date, the, the year out the treasury is, the longer the length of time you're basically loaning money to the United States government, right. the higher interest rates are. Basically, the longer you have to wait to have your money paid back to you in full. So if you have a thirty, right, a thirty-year mortgage should be a higher interest than a fifteen-year mortgage, which is an inversion, sort of, but it's insignificant. There's there's a couple of ways of looking at the yield curve that are significant. One is the traditional way, which is you look at the ninety-day T-bill rate, which is a half a percent. And you look at the 10-year rate, which is uh, out there at 2.381, and said, is the 10-year rate higher than the 90-day rate? If it is, we have a positive yield curve. You can take it out to 30 years, which some people do. And at 30 years, it's 2.435. So that's a positive yield curve. Now, in the middle, there's this little inversion. But the reason I think it's insignificant is the academic studies, and Jake's probably more familiar with those than I am even, but uh, far more familiar. The academic study says that the spread you need to actually look for if you're going to forecast in a, a recession with an inverted yield curve is the difference between 90 days and 18 months. In other words, three months and 18 months. If the three-month rate is below the 18-month rate, no recession. That's what history tells us. If it goes the other way around where the 18-month rate is lower than the 90-day rate, recession. Well, and here, here's the other key, not, and it's important, what? and it's it's not always a recession, but you need it to last for a month. That's, yes. That's the thing, is that the time where this is inverted, it can't be just because of a hiccup in the bond market. It can't be the first day that it occurs, everybody goes, 
or words to that effect. Things like, they did. <gasps> yeah, and everybody did that. So you have to wait 30 days, but that's that's not like a ringing alarm bell. You want it to ring immediately and people to go, oh, but the number of times it's inverted for a single day or a single week is a lot, a very large number that didn't cause a recession or didn't forecast a recession. When it's hanging out there over a 30-day period, that's the alarm bells. So what we're seeing right now is the first blinking yellow sign. No alarm bells going off yet, but keep an eye on this because this is a sign if that hangs out there for a while, that's a pretty good indicator of a slowdown in the economy. We're not well, there yet, but it's maybe. A, it's an indicator. It's it's a maybe. It's it's a good indicator. It's an eighty percent accurate indicator, and that's well, that's all. I mean, no indicator is perfect. The eighty percent is when the ten year is lower than the ninety day. Right. That's if it does that, and it does it for a month, then eighty percent of the time, following that, within eighteen months, which is a long time. Right. We have a recession. The 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 ninety day to eighteen month spread, which by the way is very positive right now is so far, and we just look at history, so far says every time we've gotten the 90-day uh, yield higher than the 18-month yield, it's been followed by a recession. Why is this stuff important? Why are we talking 90-day, 18-month day, and loans and this stuff? It, it's all about the efficiency of loaning and the efficiency of getting a loan. Mm -hmm. If it's right. hard to get a loan or it's expensive to get a loan, um, then it's harder to expand your business. And if it's harder to do a short-term loan than it is to do a long-term loan, you might have to lay people off because those short-term loans are often used to pay wages. So if, you, if it costs too much to pay wages, people get laid off and that causes some structural issues to follow. There's another aspect here that is pretty important. I was trying to explain it to a banker the other day and she didn't like it. So at any rate... Um, and that is banks make money in the long run. The big money that banks make ultimately is not the fees they charge you. No. It is the fact that they loan you money for a longer period of time than people loan them money. Now, what is what I mean by that? When you put your money in a savings account or in a one-year certificate of deposit or something, which is where the majority of it goes, people don't do five-year CDs very often. Those are loans. You're loaning the bank money. Right. So let's say you're loaning the bank in the current environment. And I realize if you can find a one-year CD at 1%, you probably ought to jump on it. Let's just say that you're loaning the bank for one year, uh, $65,000. You buy a CD for one year. And let's just, just, just keep this simple. And no, I don't know of any place you can get this. The bank is willing to pay you 1% of your 1% interest. Well, let's do five-year CD. Let's say you loan the bank uh, five year, for five years, you're going to loan them $65,000 and they pay you 1% a year, which is not too unreasonable at this point. The bank doesn't just take that money and put it in the vault. If somebody else walks in right behind you and says, I want to borrow money for five years to buy a car and I need, need $65,000 and they look at the person's credit rating and they look at the value of the car and they do all that and say, sure, no problem. And they charge the person who borrows the money 6%, which is pretty close to normal right now, there's a 5% spread in there. In essence, what's happening is the bank is charging you 5% a year to have your money there. That's where banks make money. Now, no, well, they, they, are, they are giving you a service as well because if instead of making the deposit at the bank, you said gave your cousin a car loan at 6%, you don't have access to the money. 
If you go to him and say, I need the money back now, well, he's going to say, I'm not going to sell my car. Right. So the bank is saying, I'm going to give you some liquidity as well. Well, you get a penalty if you liquidate the CD, but the, they they do guarantee it and they do a lot of things in that way. If your cousin if your cousin doesn't pay back the $65,000, you're kind of up a stump and you're going to have some trouble getting that money back. Whereas if you loan the bank $65,000, it's guaranteed to be there. As long as you didn't loan them more than $250,000 FDIC. In a single coverage. account. Right. right. Or a single registration. Right. Right. And then and the banks provide a lot of service for that. But in instance, it's a 5% charge to do the job. Here's how the banks make money. Now, if it reverses to where if you put money at the bank for 90 days and you get a higher interest rate that they can loan money out for somebody to buy a car for six years, the bank starts losing money. And a big chunk of our economy is based on finance. And the most fundamental aspect of finance in our economy is people loan money to banks for short periods of times, time, and the banks loan money to people for longer periods of time. And the spread between the two is where the banks make money. If that spread reverses, the banks start losing money. Banks are a big part of our economy. That's number one. Number two, when banks are losing money on loans, they tend not to make loans. And so what Jake was talking about, if I want to expand the business, I want to buy a bunch of equipment. And by the way, it's another thing I wanted to talk about this hour. And I want to buy a bunch of equipment, make my, my business more productive, uh, like we saw last year when we had a 7% rise in productivity in the United States. So I want to buy a bunch of new equipment and make my business more productive so I won't have to hire as many people so I can be more productive as time goes by and make more money and have more business and do more stuff and serve more people which we do, then you need to borrow money to do that. And if the banks won't loan a business money to make the business more productive and make more stuff, then the economy inverts. It slows down. We get a recession. Or if those loans really get it. more expensive, and that's the deal, is that this, this is the big one. When you're buying a, a big machine uh, for your business, those are generally a longer-term loan. You're getting like a 10, 15, sometimes a 30-year loan on that thing if it's a big enough investment. And uh, you may have put all your available cash into it. Say, I'm going to put 80% down payment on that so I don't have to pay interest on this thing for 30 years. But it means I'm a little short in three months on payroll. If I don't get more money in here on a regular basis, I may miss on payroll. So you go back to the bank and you say, hey, I need a little extra loan on the payroll side, just a 90-day loan. If it's more expensive to get that short-term loan, that's where I'm saying they may have to lay people off or they may decide not to make the long-term loan for 30 years because they'd have to lay people off. So it slows everything down a little bit to have an invert where the shorter term stuff is more expensive because that's the stuff people go to when they're just a little short, not when they're buying something major. If I'm just a little short, I don't want to be charged more than when I'm buying something major. Right. And that right. slows down that decision process. To give you some concrete example of how that works, Tesla's building, as many of us are aware, a big factory between here and the airport, between here and the Austin airport. And if you've been down 130, you've seen the big factory that Tesla's building. And those Samsung's, of you that are listening on the podcast, it's because we're in central Texas. We're talking about right. the Austin plant. Samsung is building a big plant in Taylor to make potato chips or something. Which is just north of Austin. Right. And... Um, they make chips of some kind, and maybe for shoulders, maybe for potatoes. I'm not right. sure. Very chippy. But wherever you are, you may see big buildings being built, which is an indication of 
an economy that's growing. Typically, the companies that build those big buildings borrow money for 30 years to pay for the big building. And all the people who are building the building and all the iron workers and the iron suppliers and everything else borrow the money to buy the stuff to do that with. And when borrowing becomes difficult or expensive, less buildings are built. So, so let's, let, let me give you a further on that. Say Samsung's building and they've got a 30-year loan and they hire a bunch of contractors to come in and do it. And they tell the contractors, we're going to pay you when the work is done. Well, for some reason, the workers want to get paid when they're doing the work. So the contractors have to take a loan out. And if the interest rate they're taking the loan for is higher than the interest rate than Samsung is taking its loan for on this long-term project, it means that the Samsung deal gets more expensive. They have to take out more long-term debt to pay the short-term on the workers. It's more expensive short-term. That slows the whole thing down. It not only slows the whole thing down, but when when companies build big buildings like this, and by the way, when they build big buildings, I like that, build big buildings, a lot of bees in there. Yeah, They hire a lot of people, and those people they hire, hire more people. The contractors hire people, and it, it ripples through the economy. This is how economies grow. If Samsung or Tesla or whoever is building a building to make stuff looks at the recovery cost of, of building that building, and, and they calculate it out very, very carefully, we can make cars and we need to do this and we need to do that and we need to do the other. And then they look at how much it's going to cost to borrow the money to build the building because they don't have the money laying around to build the building with. They borrow the money from the bank. Or from us. And they, can, and they conclude, or from us. Yeah, big bond offering. Uh, yeah, for, well, when Ford puts a bond offering out, that's lo- th- you're the one. If you buy that bond, you're loaning Ford money or Tesla money or so on. Yeah, but there's an investment bank in the middle of it, so yeah, the bank's still The bank involved. is involved, yeah. The whole point is when they calculate whether they're going to build the building to begin with. See, I got another B in there. Yeah. Build the building to begin with. They look at the cost that's involved with borrowing the money, and that's a major cost in making this building become profitable. So the building, the building to begin with has to be profitable. When the interest rates start up, it becomes more expensive to build the building to begin with, and they see more cost. And when the interest rates hit a certain point, they say, we ain't building that building to begin with. Unless the profit that they see, the potential profit from whatever they're doing, is big enough. And, and that's, that, that, that's that, another B. Right. That is the whole process here. And when you think about it from that perspective, having the short term rates get expensive slows down big building projects. Um, to begin with. To begin with. Yes. Um, potentially uh, slows them down. So that, that's, that's kind of the inverted yield curve, which we haven't really seen fully invert yet. Um, right. But there's been a lot of news about it. So we thought it's important to get that out there and say, why is it uh, that a inverted yield curve might pro, uh, cause people to start looking for a recession? It's because it's getting harder to expand. Well, there's some other indicators out there. When, you, when we talk about a potential recession, the yield curve by itself does not predict a recession. What we need to have is a whole series of things predicting a recession. And then, and by the way, we were saying this, when did we start saying this? 2018, 2019? About the 2020 recession? Or yeah, what? we said 2018, we were saying 2020, we're right. going to have a recession. 2017 and 2018, we were talking about a recession in 2020. Yep, and we're not talking about a recession at this point. And the reason is there's a lot of other indicators you need to look at to determine whether you're going to have a recession. One of the biggest ones in the short term, and it is probably the most significant, is simply to read the financial news 
and talk to people about how they feel about the economic and financial future. And when people are pessimistic and they think the market's going to fall and the economy is going to collapse and things are going to be terrible, that is really a strong indicator that we're in a bull market and things are about to get better. Yeah. When people are convinced there's no way this is going to go bad. And the, the, the famous quotes are, this could go on forever and it's different this time. Uh, it's beautiful. And we're all going to have uh, 1929, a permanent plateau of perpetual prosperity. That was a, that was a headline uh, right before yeah, the stock well, market there wasn't, crash. There wasn't a perpetual on there. It was a permanent plateau of prosperity. Oh, I had to put perpetual in there. I'm going to put yeah, some I more P's in there somewhere too. And then <laughs> if they start selling perpetual motion machines at the same time, you know you're in trouble. Right. Uh, we're but, not seeing that. Why is that? This this is the other thing that when we talk about when the whole world is saying everything's great, that's when you look for a drop. And when the whole world is saying everything's horrible, that's when you look for the rise. It's because it's a statement about how we think. If And this is the easiest way to think about it. If you're in the room with three people and beside yourself and all three of them are telling you, you really, really need to buy Bitcoin. Um you can make a pretty good estimate that they've already spent every ad available dollar that they have buying Bitcoin. And if everybody in the room has already bought Bitcoin and the room is big enough to include the entirety of society, and they're all saying buy Bitcoin. That's well, the, a really big room. It's a very big room. Uh, and maybe a tent. I don't know. Um, maybe it's a chat room. Uh, it is this big, big area. If they've all said we bought you should buy too. Well, all it takes is one person selling and the price starts down. If everybody's already put all their available assets into it, that's when they're the most enthusiastic about it. And so when all the headlines talk about the great wonders of all the future we're going to get from the stock market, that's a danger sign to us. It seems backwards. When everybody is saying the reverse, the stock market will never recover. Things like that, like what we saw at the pits in 2020 or at the pits in 2008 um, or 2002 of this is just the way we're, we're just going to have to get used to this forever. That's the time There's, when you, when you want to jump in. That's the time when you would say this is great because this is historically the, the lowest of the low. This is the irony. The market is within 5 or 6% of all-time record highs. That would indicate we have a high market. Yep. However, what we see historically at the bottom of bear markets is a high level of private non-residential business investment. Yep. What does that mean? Uh, private private non-residential. That means little companies buying stuff that they're not that, that isn't like the residence of their employees. It's not cars to use for personal stuff. This is business investment at a small too. level and big companies, but they're not publicly traded big companies. No, no, no. Well, no, this was non-government. Non-government right. is what you're saying. Okay, go ahead. So, what we this, as a matter of fact, Tesla is an example. If you live in Central Texas and you've been to the in and out of the Austin airport, you've seen the huge factory. We had seven point four percent growth in private non-residential business investment in 2021. We just now got that figure, by the way. That is the kind of investment we saw in 2002 at the bottom of the market. We saw in 2009 at the bottom of the market, which, by the way, explains why we saw a high level of productivity growth last year. And I expect we'll see a high level of productivity growth this year as well. This is an indication that the market is low. Um, the pessimism we see in the media indicates the market is low. Um, there's just, there's a lot of indications out there that suggest 
that we've got a lot of growth left in the economy and for that matter in the market, which is weird because if you look at the economic news or the financial news, it's, it is so pessimistic. Um, but pessimism sells papers, or in this case, clicks. And that's what's going on. The, the, all the underlying indicators that we normally look at to see the advent of a recession or a bear market are pointing in the other direction. Uh, even, and I know this is kind of sound strange because we're talking about interest rates going up. If we look at the current level of interest rates versus the expected level of inflation, interest rates are still negative. Basically, if you, you can still borrow money, if you're a very high credit rating in your corporation or something, you can still borrow money for less than probable inflation over the next 10 years. So the economy is still in stimulus mode. Now, is the Federal Reserve going to raise interest rates through the rest of the year? Almost certainly. Is it going to slow things down? Yes. As a matter of fact, there's an interesting thing going on that the average 30-year mortgage is now above 4%. It's way above 4%, which you'd think would slow the housing market down, but it isn't because the only thing that's slowing the housing market down in the United States right now is there's just not enough houses to sell. People still want to buy houses. Uh, So we're still in a positive economic slope. Uh, everything is still charging along in the right direction. Uh, I think it's, and then we can talk about, we can talk about labor too. Yeah. Oh, we've got the labor market to talk about. Cause let's do that real quick. It's a pretty quick, um, subject. It's really good news. Uh, the labor department came out with some pretty cool stuff this week. Uh, the labor market, um, employers added 431,000 jobs in March. That's, that's a lot by the way. That puts us, uh, as of, you know, if we're looking back to January of 2020, right before the pandemic started, that puts us down about 1.2 million jobs from then. All that's, that's like three months of March (laughs) to be back there. But something that we have told you repeatedly during this time period is we've had a lot of retirement during that same time period. A lot of people left the labor market period. They just left and they didn't come back. So these jobs are going to new people coming into the labor market, which we don't have a whole lot of new people coming in. So where are the jobs coming from? People that didn't work before the pandemic are coming into the workplace. This is weird. We, if you look at the net number of jobs since then, um, we're down 1.2 million. We've had about 3 million people retire. We haven't had 2 million people uh, during two year period, we didn't have a birth rate that was a million people a year during this time period. It just, that's not how fast we grow. So we're pulling people that weren't working before into the workforce now, which is amazing. And that's a really cool statement. And jobless claims at the same time were really low. Um, 14,000, so it's seasonally adjusted 202 new jobless claims, 202,000 new jobless claims which is what it was running prior to the pandemic. Uh, that's people leaving a job to go to another job. This is you know, normal movement from one place to another. And you were going to say something. So, Well, there's actually some anecdotal evidence. We don't have any solid evidence on this right now, statistical evidence. But there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that people who retired in 2020 during the pandemic are unretiring at this point. And this is an interesting little sidelight. The reason the majority of them are giving anecdotally again, for unretiring, 
for going back to work is inflation. Yeah. Basically, inflation has an interesting positive effect on the economy and the market. Now, we know if it gets too high, obviously, it's crazy and, we, and it's bad. And, no, not good for anybody. But when prices are expected to go up, people tend to buy things now rather than waiting until later. And when they buy things sooner rather than later, it tends to accelerate the economy. It's another reason the Fed wants to raise rates is so people will buy things slower rather than faster. But a, a little bit of it, which is, by the way, also why the Fed targets 2% inflation rather than 0% inflation. When people expect prices will be higher in the future, they buy now rather than later. Um, so we're charging along. Can I change the subject? Sure. It's a good time okay. to do it. Um, Here's a warning. We've got a couple of other good subjects coming up, just as a side note. We've got, we're going to be talking about um, China after this right. as well. So go ahead. I want to talk about Russia, Russia a little bit too. Yeah. The GDP numbers for the first quarter of 2022 are going to look terrible. Yep. Well, and we said this during the first quarter. We said this was going to be the case. So and with us saying there's a lot of growth and us then saying the GDP numbers are going to look bad. Don't be surprised when it happens. Remember that GDP numbers are growth in gross domestic product. And that's all they are. We had a huge jump in growth at an annualized rate of 7%, which is not sustainable, in the fourth quarter. That was generated by people rebuilding their inventories because the supply chain issue emptied out their inventories. They, they were selling stuff, but they weren't bringing stuff in as fast as they were selling it, which is why the prices went up. They rebuilt inventories a lot in the fourth quarter. They're not rebuilding inventories quickly in the first quarter of this year. Inflation year over year, and that's one of the odd things about the GDP, that, which is that the inflation year over year inflation is subtracted from one quarter's returns, which tends to artificially lower the GDP. If we have a positive GDP at all in the first quarter, if it's 0.1%, that means we hung on to that 7% growth we had in the fourth quarter. We didn't lose any ground. Now, there will be a lot of whining and complaining that the GDP is slowing down. We're going backwards. We're heading to a recession. No, no, no. It means that we accelerated to a high speed, as high a speed as our economic engine can handle. And we, then we accelerated just a little more. That doesn't mean we're slowing down to the engines blowing up. So be prepared for the gross domestic product numbers to come out low and the pundits to go, woe is me, moan, terrible, the world's coming to an end. And in the middle of that, this is, this is one of the most controversial bits of data that we say, and that's on wages and inflation. Wages rose slightly higher than inflation. That's, that's the good news. No, you're going to have a lot of people that say that didn't happen. Because this is on average. <clears throat> so on average, wages flow, rose higher than the average inflation. There are places in the United States that inflation is rising at a much higher rate than in other places. And there are places in the United States that wages have not recovered at all. So averages are deceiving. When you're looking at the overall economy... It's a good news situation. There are definitely pockets of much higher inflation and pockets of much lower wages. So just keep that in mind. The average is looking good, though. Well, when we talk about inflation, there's, there's so many different measurements of inflation. The, the, current, the consumer price index was up 7.9% year over year. And wages did However, not rise that fast. No, but the consumer price index assumes you're buying a new house every year. Yeah, also, 
assumes that you're renting that house out mm -hmm. to yourself <laughs> to yourself yes right but there is a, something that is over the long term the historically at least and the one the federal reserve pays most attention to is something called the cpe the core cpe or pce pce i'm sorry yeah that is the 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 things that people actually buy consumer expenditure and that's up 5.4% year over year. Now, why? what's the difference between the core and the regular PCE? And it is that we leave out fuel and food. And you say, wow, why would you leave out food and fuel? Well, I have to eat and my car needs go, fuel. Right. They tend to zigzag up and down very fast. And when you put it in there, it produces a lot of noise. Just as an example, um, tomatoes tend to be cheaper in harvest season than they are in the depths of winter. Is that inflation that uh, winter caused the prices of tomatoes to go up? Yes, it is, as a matter it, that's inflation. But it's not a really good number to measure things with because there's a pretty normal seasonal part of that. Um, so this is when you hear people say seasonal adjustment. Well, it's easier to pull out the things that need the most seasonal adjustment because seasonal adjustments can mess up your data. You can, I mean, people were seasonally adjusting the labor data during the depths of the pandemic. I'm like, no, just get that out. There's, that's not part of this anymore. Uh, it, it's, so pulling fuel out and pulling food out says, all right, we still have inflation. We still have cars. We still have houses that are going up rapidly. But you're probably not buying a new car every year. You're probably not buying a new house every year. So it's a, it's a more realistic look on what the underlying inflation really is. Okay, back to you. Yeah, that's basically what I was going to say. And the other thing is, you notice that the price of oil is down 20%. Well, that means gasoline will probably come down very shortly too. Right. Yeah, and there's, is, a, there's is, always a lag. People don't see it. This is really important. When oil prices started up, there was about a two-week lag before gas prices started up. When oil prices start down, it's usually about a three-week lag. Why? Because it takes longer for the places with the highest price to empty the tanks of gasoline under the gasoline sales place because it's got higher prices on it, and they've got to get through that reserve before the price. They bought that gas underground at the filling station at a higher price. They have to sell it at a higher price before they can replace it with the lower price, and that's when you see the sales change and there's a bigger lag on the downside than there is on the upside did you know that yes there is yeah when gasoline's cheap people buy more of it more quickly but when it's expensive like it is right now people tend to buy less gasoline which makes it take longer to empty the tank out to put the cheaper gasoline in there which means that there's going to be a bigger lag before the prices go down right and people look at it and they say i saw the price of oil drop why isn't the gas dropping well because you didn't go buy the expensive gas so that they could replace it with cheap gas Right. right. Well, why would I do that? Well, because uh, because it's more expensive. Wait. Oh, well, you actually get through that stuff. I just, uh, we were talking last hour about something. We were talking about these, uh, and John had asked this question about inverse exposure, uh, exposure leveraged exposure in the market. I was just looking at what, at what is, I think, the most popular, you talk about how popular these ETFs are, exchange-traded funds. I just looked at the most popular uh, that I could find exchange-traded fund that's an inverted leveraged fund, 
And its average annual rate of return over the last five years has been a negative 44.78%. Oh, yeah. Let me buy a lot of that. That sounds great. No, Uh, no thanks. Actually, had you bought it a year ago, you would have only lost 27%. Yes. But this last quarter, it's it's got a positive return when a lot of other places have got negatives, right? Right. Year to date, it's up 7.42%. But this is the point. Gaining 7.42% because you made the bet right that the market was going to go down versus losing 27% if you made the bet wrong. Or did probably it, a, or even the right bet, you're just two and a half months early. Right. You, the, there's a problem in that. And that is the, the problem is the downside risk is much higher than the upside risk. It's kind of like actually the odds of doing well in an inverse leveraged fund ETF are worse than they are going to Vegas. Yes. And, and you don't get the free goodies. The, the Nevada Gaming Commission would not allow those kinds of odds at a casino. Right. <laughs> and we're about out of time. And until next week, we need to close up. And this has been the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake. McClure. Um, we didn't say that. No, we didn't. Um, but didn't. it's all right. Uh, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, I'm going to give the numbers really fast. 947-1111 or 1-800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's newsletters. You can sign up for them. You can contact us through there. You can email us directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com. That's important. Uh, if you want to go and get podcasts, if you just haven't gotten enough of the gleam from our heads uh, through your radio, you can go get us on podcast anywhere podcasts are given. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.